0: You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 63, Schizophrenia.
1: I read a very good book called Autobiography of a Schizophrenic Girl by Marguerite Séchet. It's a book about a recovered schizophrenia patient who recounts what it was like as a child struggling with it. It's pretty harrowing reading. And today, we're going to dive into schizophrenia, and, but I'm going to start with a passage from this book where she recounts a time that she was talking to her therapist in the hospital. She smiled gently at me and answered something I don't remember, but her smile, instead of reassuring me, only increased the anxiety and confusion, for I saw her teeth, white and even in the gleam of the light." Remaining, all the while like themselves, soon they monopolized my entire vision, as if the whole room were nothing but teeth under a remorseless light.
2: Wow, that's horrifying.
1: Yeah, you know, think of this from the therapist's perspective. She smiled at her patient, which one would reasonably expect to be comforting, but look how it took on a sinister meaning in the mind of the patient. And unless they tell you, you know, you would have no idea that they were terrified or why.
2: Yes, yeah, so let's talk about what schizophrenia is. It's a mental illness, and it's classified as a psychotic disorder, and the word psychosis comes from Greek, meaning from psyche or mind and soul, and osis, abnormal condition of, and it means a loss of contact with reality. So, in the passage you read, we can see very much this break with reality. She sees a gentle smile, and her mind experiences a remorseless world of just teeth.
1: Yes. Yeah, and the term schizophrenia—that's that's a fairly recent term, right?
2: More or less, yeah. Historically, people who we would have called crazy or lunatic would likely correspond to people who we would diagnose with
1: schizophrenia today. And how did the term evolve?
2: So, in the late eighteen hundreds, uh, Emil Kreppelin, who was a uh, German psychiatrist, was the first to thoroughly define the symptoms of schizophrenia, combining several elements of insanity into one disorder. And he also distinguished schizophrenia from manic depression, which we now call bipolar disorder. And originally, Kraepelin called schizophrenia dementia precox, or premature dementia, because the disorder usually appeared in late adolescence.
1: Oh, so it sounds like scientists thought it was some kind of a, like a premature aging of the brain?
2: Yeah, and it wasn't until later on in the late, uh, latter, like early 1900s, a uh, Swiss scientist Eugen Bleuler, Eugen Bleuler and I, I had to look that up, it's a Swiss pronunciation, <laughs> introduced the term schizophrenia, uh, which replaced Kraepelin's dementia precox. And this name change is important because it shows that Bleuler uh, believed that the core problem was not premature aging of the
1: brain. If we break it down, what does schizophrenia mean? Like what are its roots?
2: Again, it's from the Greek. Uh, it literally means split mind, and it comes from Boiler's belief in the, quote, breaking of associative threads, the so-called destruction of forces that connect one thought to the next. So, in other words, the various elements of the individual's mind become disconnected from each other, and thoughts no longer have any logical connection to each other or to reality in general.
1: And But schizophrenia is different from, like, split personality disorder, right?
2: Yeah, and people tend to think schizophrenia refers to split or multiple personalities.
1: All right, but it's not true.
2: No, In fact, they don't even call it sp- sp- split personalities disorder. It's known as dissociative identity disorder, which we can talk about in another episode.
1: <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. So uh, what does characterize schizophrenia? Well, it's a bit
2: complicated. Uh, schizophrenia is not necessarily a unitary disorder with a specific set of symptoms.
1: Yeah, that would make it, that would make it easy.
2: Mm hmm. And psychiatry is anything but easy. But people with schizophrenia tend to experience system symptoms that can be divided into three basic groups or clusters. So we can talk about positive symptoms. And those aren't positive in the sense that they're good. They're just symptoms that go above and beyond uh, the normal experience. Negative symptoms are those, it's the opposite, it's characterized by deficit or absence in normal behavior, and then the third category of symptoms are so-called cognitive symptoms. These are also known as disorganized symptoms, and those that are, they're characterized by erratic changes in speech, motor behavior, or emotions.
1: Okay, well, let's talk about, let's talk about them one by one. Um, What are some examples of the positive symptoms of schizophrenia?
2: Well, these are the ones that you would tend to think about, you know, when people think, uh, what is schizophrenia? The, what do they think of? Hallucinations, right? So the positive ones tend to be um, hallucinations and the other one is is delusions.
1: Yeah, right, hallucinations. So we talked about hallucinations in a few previous episodes of Minding the Brain. Um, imaginary People was episode 26 and the hallucination episode was episode 23. In case people want to dive into our catalog, hallucinations are the experience of sensory events without being caused by the appropriate input from the surrounding environment.
2: Exactly. So, as we discussed in our previous episodes, hallucinations can be caused by several factors, including drugs, lack of sleep, and then of course, things like
1: disorders like schizophrenia. Uh, Let's talk about what kind of hallucinations are common in schizophrenia.
2: Well, hallucinations can involve any of the senses, but auditory hallucinations such as voices are the most common in schizophrenia. So about 60 to 80% of patients with schizophrenia experience auditory verbal hallucinations and less than 10% experience visual hallucinations. And many hallucinations are simply like a running commentary of what's going on in their brain or outside of their brain. Others are more sinister. Uh, Command hallucinations involve voices that are giving orders, and interestingly, that's what's typically represented in the medium.
1: Yeah, and we interviewed someone with voices in the head back in episode 18. We have a lot of episodes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> They're adding up, aren't they? Um, okay, so sometimes, sometimes the voices command people to do things, uh, and people sometimes actually act on those uh, commands, right? <laughs>
2: Well, rarely. It's actually a myth that people with schizophrenia are more dangerous than the average person. Individuals who are being treated for schizophrenia are not necessarily more violent than anyone else. For those living with untreated schizophrenia, they are actually the greatest danger to, danger to themselves. The greatest risk is self-harm or suicide.
1: Yeah. this. Is, I'm going to read another bit from that autobiography about um, commands and stuff. And I quote, Um, At the same time, I received orders from the system. I did not hear the orders as voices, yet they were as imperious as if uttered in a loud voice. While, for example, I was preparing to do some typing, suddenly, without any warning of force, which was not an impulse but rather resembled a command, ordered me to burn my right hand or the building in which I was. Then a few pages later, she continues, the orders became more frequent and soon I felt compelled to do everything in my power to carry them out. It's, it's so tragic. Absolutely. Sure is. Um, now, Greg Shankland, whom I interviewed in the Voices in the Head episode, often reminds me that it's not just voices. Um, we think of voices in the head as being merely an auditory phenomenon, but the voices come with thoughts and beliefs and images, strong feelings about what's important. Um, and this is something that lots of people, including therapists, often misunderstand. It's, uh, it's, it's voices plus a whole lot of other mental phenomena. Has he ever been diagnosed with schizophrenia? Uh, He's never been diagnosed with it, I don't think. Hmm.
2: One little fun fact, I think we did talk about this in our previous episode, but just a, a reminder for folks that haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, that the scientists have done studies where they've had people with active schizophrenia, untreated, experiencing auditory hallucinations go into um, brain scanners like the MRI. And what they've shown is that people are experiencing these hallucinations, they actually have activity in the parts of the brain that correspond to the auditory cortex. So it's like those cells are firing in the absence of external stimuli. So, you know, it just gives validity to the fact that these voices to them are very real. It is actually corresponding to neuronal firing.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of um, individual differences too. Like sometimes they're heard uh, at a spe- from a specific place. So you know how you your your ears can localize the sound. It sounds like it's coming from your left or right. But sometimes it just sounds like it's in the head, kind of like when sometimes when you're wearing headphones, it's not really easy to localize. Um, and then sometimes it's not voices at all, right? But so, sometimes, but like the, yeah, the link to language is important too because sometimes. Not Greg, (laughs) but some people, if they just open their mouth and hold it, they can stop the voices. Um, Or if they uh, are talking to a real person, the voices are a little bit quieter. So, there's this idea that the voices are recruiting the language, you know, the language parts of someone's brain, which makes sense. And we also know that people can't really process more than one stream of speech at a time. So, yeah, it's it's interesting, like, which which parts of the brain are getting unlocked during an auditory verbal hallucination. Um, so let's let's move on from hallucinations and talk about delusions, and they're they're different, right? So, they're defined as irrational beliefs or paranoia that misrepresents reality. Um, and are there different kinds of delusions? Yep, there's a few. So I'll talk about three of
2: them. So the first are delusions of grandeur. And these are the belief that some an individual is famous, such as Napoleon or Jesus Christ or the Buddha. And these are important in some, and they believe that they're important in some special way. So they're capable of ending world hunger, for example, or you know saving uh, the earth from climate change. The second is there are delusions of persecution, so it's exactly what it sounds like, so an individual believes uh, others are out to get him, her, or them. And then the final category are erotomanic delusions, so when an individual believes that another person, often a celebrity, is in love with him or her, and there's been some actually tragic cases of um, folks with severe er erotomanic delusions that have indeed um,
1: stalked or attacked Celebrities. Wow. Um, okay, but someone can have delusions that are not, you know, far fetched. They can be quite plausible, right? Correct.
2: And you might have a delusion
1: that you know people are looking at you
2: funny, but you're act. But if you're acting strangely, people actually might be. Um, but in the so-called Bible of psychiatry, the DSM, the delusions can be classified as bizarre if they are clearly impossible.
1: Like what? Give me some. Let's talk about some examples.
2: Uh, so uh, belief in outside force has removed your internal organs and replaced them with someone else um, but delusions can be non-bizarre if they are somewhat plausible so for example believing the government is listening to your phone calls
1: <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> i mean some people definitely have those thoughts and sometimes we call them conspiracy theorists yep and that's episode 42. <laughs> you know in 10 years half of the episode will be taken up with references to past episodes. <laughs> For sure.
2: <laughs> hey, Jim, episode two. Hey, Kim, episode three. <laughs> um, the difference between plausible and implausible is not actually clear, and there's a blurry line into beliefs about aliens, government espionage, etc. cetera, so.
1: Yeah, I-, I read an account by someone with schizophrenia who was going to be on the radio later, and when she told her therapist that, the therapist classified it as a delusion of grandeur. <laughs>
2: Oh, oh, man, that's, that's tough. Uh, that, that's definitely a judgment call on the part of the therapist, and they can sometimes get it wrong. I mean, Apple is constantly listening to our devices to market things to us. I would say, like most personality and behavioral traits, paranoia, which is what delusions are manifest as, exists on a spectrum. And some people are just more paranoid than others. It doesn't necessarily mean you have schizophrenia. Uh, being paranoid is is a trait. Um, it's just paranoia in you know in the context of other symptoms. So, we'll get into this a little later on when we talk about the neuroscience of schizophrenia.
1: Oh, you're just dying to get into that, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Neuroscience. I can't
2: wait. Anyway, so I think it relates to the amplitude of certain circuits in the brain that are involved with attention and focus. Okay.
1: Yeah, we will get to the neuroscience. Um, and I, I want to read something from the autobiography that I think sheds some light on the nature of hallucination. So, here it goes. One day, while I was in the principal's office, suddenly the room became enormous, illuminated by a dreadful electric light that cast false shadows. Everything was exact, smooth, artificial, extremely tense. The chairs and tables seemed models placed here and there. Pupils and teachers were puppets, revolving without cause, without objective. That's pretty intense. Yeah, you know, when most people think about hallucinations, they tend to think about A hallucinated object appearing, you know, in their visual field, right? But often, they're distortions of real things that are seen. This is why I read the passage, right? So, she was seeing light in the room, but Marguerite, the the author, saw it as a dreadful light that cast false shadows. So, you know, sometimes hallucinations are about your interpretation of what you're sensing, even more than sensing them incorrectly.
2: Yeah, and sometimes the difference between a perceptual and cognitive symptom is unclear.
1: Yeah. Okay, let's turn back to symptoms of schizophrenia. So, we've covered the positive. So, let's talk about some negative symptoms.
2: So, a reminder that negative symptoms are loss of some capability, behavior, cognitive um Uh, skill, for example, and you can think about it as the five A's, so apathy, ambivalence, anhedonia, affective flattening, and autism. So apathy is the inability to get started, perform basic day-to-day functions, and then this can lead to problems with hygiene, keeping a job, keeping a place to live, for example. Mm -hmm. Ambivalence is um, really characterized by emotional and social withdrawal, like you literally just don't care and you're ambivalent. Anhedonia comes from the Greek without pleasure, and it's indifference to activities that are typically considered to be pleasurable. Affective flattening. So, affect is a fancy word for emotion. And this, when we have affective flattening, it's your emotions are kind of toned down. And this can be in your speech or even your facial expressions. So, the absence of visible emotions, facial expressions, emotional inflections, and in speech. And approximately a quarter of people with schizophrenia exhibit this flattened affect and it's as though they're wearing an expressionless mask at all times and this is interesting in the sense that because they're not moving their face to express you know anger or sadness or joy they actually get fewer wrinkles in the face and they uh, age slower silver lining yeah silver lining indeed and the, and the last one is autism and uh, I want to mention it it doesn't really hear, uh have anything to do with the Disorder known as autism. Here it refers to a set of behaviors and the tendency to keep to oneself and lose interest in other people or their surroundings.
1: Yeah, they all, they all, they kind of all sound like withdrawing and not caring. They like different flavors of that, right? Okay, so this, so this autism symptom, that's different from the autism in autism spectrum disorder. Yep. What are they, did they just, are they trying to make it confusing? Let's use the same exact word. That's a different disorder.
2: absolutely welcome to psychiatry
1: (laughs) um yeah uh, and this and this withdrawal reminds me of another passage from the book so it goes around me the other children heads bent over their work were robots or puppets moved by an invisible mechanism on the platform the teacher too talking gesticulating rising to write on the blackboard was a grotesque jack-in-the-box
2: Whoa. You can imagine why someone might withdraw from other people with feelings, feelings like that. She stopped seeing people as
1: people. Right. Okay. So, the five A's of negative schizophrenia symptoms are apathy, ambivalence, anhedonia, affective flattening, and autism. Um, and these these sound like symptoms you could have with other disorders, though, right?
2: That's right. So, uh, for example, anhedonia is... Common in depression, it's one of the key symptoms of depression. As is experiencing flattened affect, and flattened affect can also be a side effect of medicine.
1: Ah, <sighs> oh, right, that's that's confusing. So, like a therapist has to tease out what looks like one disease might be something much more serious.
2: Yeah, then there's so much symptom overlap which makes it quite t- tricky to diagnose. And as a psychiatrist, you can imagine this is why you need to rule out other c- other causes. Um and can it, this can make it quite difficult to treat some suggest even that you should be treating symptoms
1: and not necessarily the disorder. Yeah, yeah, I read something about that 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 the I mean, everybody like the the DSM which is like the manual is is reached at by consensus, not by scientific study, which is Interesting. (laughs) I I was reading that they're they're like when you try to find actual correlations between the symptoms that they attach to these diseases, it doesn't work out super well. So, yeah, I've heard about this. Like, you know, what's the benefit to putting a big label um, when, you know, maybe we should just be attaching symptoms to treatments or something like that? Um, Okay. So, all right, let's get into treatments a little bit later. We'll finish up with the symptoms. So, the last one you said are what? Cognitive symptoms?
2: Correct. So the cognitive symptoms include disorganized speech. So people with schizophrenia often have a confusing way of talking. They'll jump around randomly from topic to topic or go off on illogical tangents. Uh, this is often called word word salad. Uh, the second one is inappropriate affect, which you recall I talked about flattened affect above uh, or earlier. I should say I talked about flattened affect earlier. This. Inappropriate affect is when you're responding something to something in an emotional way that is inappropriate for the current situation. So, for example, an individual with schizophrenia may laugh or cry in situations that call call for neither. Disorganized behavior is the last one. And this is a bit, I don't know, I don't really like the the typology of this, Um, but this refers to... People with schizophrenia that can show motor symptoms that range from wild agitation to catatonic immobility. And so catatonia refers to people who are really not moving. Uh, They seem frozen in place, but uh, what's curious is they may display something called waxy flexibility.
1: Waxy flexibility? What? What is what is that? What it sounds like?
2: Yeah. Uh, so you can imagine an individual might be frozen in place, and they can be frozen in these really weird, bizarre postures. But if somebody comes in and moves their hands or their legs, and can be posed, they'll stay like that.
1: Right. So so this, cataton- this catatonia is not just release of muscle tone; they just flop. It, they're actually, you their hand could be stuck like up. Like requiring muscle tension, right?
2: Yep. And wow. this speaks to some of the common circuits in the brain that are associated with both language and motor control.
1: Wow. Well, all right. Well, you just can't wait to get to this brain stuff. <laughs> I know. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. So, the three categories of symptoms are positive, negative, and cognitive. Now, is someone diagnosed if they meet all three of these categories? Actually,
2: no. It's a bit more complex than that. Oh, of course. Psychiatry, not simple. So essentially, and I'm quoting from the DSM here, to have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, you need to have met two or more of the following symptoms, each present for a significant portion of time during a one month period or less if successfully treated. And at least one of these must be one, two or three. So one, two or three so I'll read them out. It's delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, for example, frequent derailment or incoherence. And then symptoms four and five are grossly disorganized or catatonic behavior, negative symptoms, so diminished emotional expression or abolition, which is you're not wanting to move basically. So again, you need to meet one of the five, but one of them must be delusions, hallucinations, or disorganized speech. So you can have a, what the whole point is that you can have this mix of these symptoms and it can be quite challenging to determine, you know, are the delusions because of schizophrenia or are they because of some other minor uh like personality disorders so some of the personality disorders have delus- delusions or are the hallucinations from drugs right or again are there other causes to that so it is a little it is tricky to to actually get to a full diagnosis of schizophrenia
1: so when when is someone typically diagnosed with schizophrenia you mentioned earlier about some kind of uh, like adolescent onset is typical
2: that's right. So, schizophrenia is usually diagnosed in late adolescence or early adulthood because there's typically a lag about one to two years between the first onset of symptoms and diagnosis. Um, it's This is because it's really, really hard to achieve an actual diagnosis of schizophrenia because the earlier symptoms aren't quite as severe as later symptoms. So, the great majority of people, full-blown schizophrenia is preceded by this prodromal phase, which is about that one to two year period where you get these subdued symptoms that begin to appear, things like magical thinking, minor illusions, so feeling a presence when one is alone, and uh, something called ideas of reference, which are common.
1: Yeah. uh, What are ideas of reference?
2: So, these are experiences where you feel like everything external is some kind of sign and related to you. So, for example, let's say, my, I was born on November 3rd, 3 is kind of a number that, you know, I associate with me and you can imagine every time you see the number 3 somewhere, it's like a sign, some something being, you know, pointing to you saying, okay, you should pay attention to Harvey's is having a sale because their burgers are 333. Something going on with Harvey's, it means that maybe Satan is living at Harvey's and you need to go there and make sure that Satan isn't poisoning people and so on and so forth. So, it's all these messaging that is about you.
1: Yeah, and this is this is paranoid behavior.
2: Yeah, 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 exactly. And many people, like I said earlier, show this. It's not just people with schizophrenia, but ideas and uh, ideas of reference can also be delusions of grandeur, like thinking that situations were set up specifically to be presented to you or that the newspaper headlines are different because of what you casually said a few days ago.
1: And this might have to do with uh, kind of an amped up pattern detection. So, people with schizophrenia mm. tend to see more patterns in random noise than most people do. I mean, everyone does a little bit, but um, persons with schizophrenia do. Uh, and they see more meaning in random events.
2: Yeah, and this, I would say, has to do with having like, higher than average baseline dopamine levels.
1: Yeah, dopamine, that's um, a neurotransmitter, and uh, you can have more or less of it. And higher dopamine, one of the many things that it happens is it, you have more pattern detection. So, you're better at seeing patterns, but you also see patterns that aren't there. So, you're, you're more likely to see things as significant, salient, important, where most of us would just ignore it. Like, you know, what is the significance of there being five people ahead of me in line? You know, if there are five people ahead of you in line, most of us just don't even notice it. Like, it's, it's the number five isn't particularly special, but people with schizophrenia might, like, wonder why five, right? It just mm-hmm. seems important mm-hmm. and salient
2: hmm And what we accept as normal, for people with schizophrenia, some things just don't add up, making them wonder about it.
1: Right, right. And this this might lead to delusions, just to help them make sense of it, right? Like, it might be that one of the reasons uh, persons with schizophrenia tend to go to these government conspiracies, aliens, or God, is is that they're feeling all these things, and, uh, you know, the, the universe seems to be revolving around them, and what, what other explanation could there be other than some kind of a super powerful being – uh, or organization could possibly be capable of orchestrating. All these, like, vast coincidences they're suddenly feeling and seeing that they never noticed before. And so, you know, what's left other than, you know, governments and gods and aliens, you know? hmm
2: And people with schizophrenia tend to be more religious.
1: Right. Well, let's talk about treatment. Uh, is, it, is there any hope? Do people who get a diagnosis of schizophrenia, do they, can they get better?
2: Yes and no. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the prognosis. So prognosis is a medical term meaning what does the future hold for me? If I have a given diagnosis, you can talk about short term and long term prognosis. And this depends on a few things, but mostly people tend to do better if they, when they're diagnosed, they have a greater proportion of positive symptoms, more so than negative symptoms. So, it typically means you will do better, mostly because the medicine we have to treat schizophrenia better targets the positive symptoms over the negative or cognitive symptoms. But a diagnosis means somebody will typically have periods of relapse and remission all throughout their lifespan, with the worst period being in their 20s and 30s.
1: Oh, that's awful. Just, just as someone's about to enter their the stage of their life with independence and autonomy.
2: hmm That's right. And we do occasionally see this among our university students because they are sometimes at that age, right? Mm-hmm. And I've seen some truly tragic cases where a student really needs to step away from their studies because they're not well. But the good news stories are also there. So, we have had students where they've gotten help and support and medicine and they're able
1: to return uh, to university and actually do quite well. Wow. Okay, let's switch gears. How, uh, how common is schizophrenia? Well,
2: um, population estimates suggest it's about 1% of the population, and it's very clearly genetic.
1: One out of every 100 people. That's actually, mm-hmm. that seems like a lot, you know? Mm-hmm. How, how do we figure that out? Well, go to old fashioned family treats, right? Ah, of course. So if your mom and dad had a diagnosis, you're more likely to?
2: Yeah, there's uh, an orderly positive relationship between the number of genes you share with someone who has the disorder and your odds of getting it yourself. So, for example, if your identical twin has it, you have about a forty-eight percent chance of getting it as well.
1: So, is there a gene for schizophrenia?
2: No. So, if that were the case, identical twins would be a hundred percent concordant. So, uh, mm-hmm. concordant. So that means. Every identical twin. They would both show schizophrenia. Um, But rather than being any one gene for schizophrenia, there's probably a collection of genes that are implicated. And importantly, it's not just the inheritance of that gene, but other factors as well.
1: well. Yeah. And we should add that when it comes to medicine, there are like only a handful of diseases that are kind of directly caused by genes, right? It's almost always an interaction with the environment, right? Correct. Correct.
2: Yeah. So... Like many uh, mental disorders, many medical problems in general, we have too much or too little of a good thing, and neither of those are good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So, that's interesting. So, you know, schizophrenia is clearly maladaptive, right? It really makes living difficult. So, you know, if there's a genetic component, it does seem strange that evolution wouldn't have eliminated those genes.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. It could be that we have some mental or brain function that helps us, but it can get out of whack and lead to disorders.
1: Right, so like too little dopamine leads to Parkinson's, and too much can facilitate addictions.
2: Mm-hmm. So lesser amounts of whatever can cause schizophrenia might be adaptive and stay in the gene pool.
1: You know, there's a milder version called schizotypy or schizotypal disorder, um, but it is related to schizophrenia. And one thought that I've come across in the literature is that people with schizotypy are often believed in pre-industrial societies uh, to be divinely inspired. Right? So, it's a religious, there's some religion and they, uh, someone with schizotypy has strange visions and they behave oddly and they are more likely than others to end up as witch doctors or shamans or considered blessed, blessed by people in society and can sometimes even set the religious tone for the society and affect it. So, the hallucinations, ideation about gods and ideas of reference, claiming you are, you know, uh, a divine being, right? Outside of an understanding of mental illness. You know these people can strike some as divine right a chosen person seeing something about the true nature of the cosmos
2: not only are they more religious but people schizophrenia tend to be more creative too right
1: yeah and and all this is like speaking to why evolution hasn't weeded it out right because in the in the in the lighter cases um it can sometimes be adaptive right so Mm -hmm. high functioning persons with schizophrenia can be quite effective and john nash is a very famous case That's right. He was
2: the one the movie A Beautiful Mind was about.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, And once he was asked, like, how can you, he believed some, you know, very weird things. And, but he was also clearly a genius, right? So, he, somebody asked him once, like, how could you believe in such wild and weird things and have such amazing insights into, you know, stuff like game theory? And he said something like, because I arrive at the weird ideas the same way with the same conviction as the other ones. So, like. You know, you, a lot, I think people don't appreciate sometimes that it's your feeling about the truth of something that that drives you, right? And he would get this very strong feeling of, yeah, I'm onto something about some really good mathematical thing, but also, um, you know, some very uh, break with reality kinds of stuff. And yeah, creativity, like if, uh, I, I saw a 40-year population study that found that people with schizophrenia were overrepresented in creative professions, for example, Um, And then there's an adoption study that found that people with a genetic liability for schizophrenia, but don't actually have schizophrenia, are significantly more creative than other people. Hmm. There's also been a
2: suggestion that parasites are linked with schizophrenia, specifically something called Toxoplasmosis gondii. Oh. Uh, and it might be that a the parasite. Parasit- yes, the parasite uh, triggers schizophrenia in potentially genetically sensitive people. And neurons harboring the parasite generate three and a half times more dopamine.
1: So, so yeah, definitely more than genes implicated in mm-hmm. the cause of schizophrenia in an individual, Right. That's right. So let's talk about the epigenetic
2: impact. So like I said, it's probably schizophrenia is caused by a combination of genes and environmental insults or input. Uh, So for example, there's evidence that problems before and shortly after birth. So, the perinatal period can increase the risk of developing schizophrenia. So, in conditions where there's potentially a lack of oxygen to the fetal brain during delivery, fetal exposure to influenza and other virus-like diseases may also subtly damage the fetal brain in a way that causes the symptoms of schizophrenia later in life. And prenatal nutrition and stress is also implicated. Have you heard of the Dutch hunger winter?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think What is it, during World War II, there was like a food shortage because of uh, Nazi occupation in the Netherlands and people starved to death. But there were some like um, down-the-road effects, right? That's right. So, scientists or, you
2: know, I think it was doctors followed the women who were pregnant during the Dutch hunger winter. And depending on the severity of the caloric restriction and what stage of pregnancy the woman was at, It significantly predicted schizophrenia uh, later in life of of the babies. So, babies born to those women who had severe caloric restriction were almost two times more likely to have schizophrenia. And what this suggests to us is this is, you know, a very tragic case of a real-life scientific experiment. It suggests that either extreme nutritional deprivation and or possibly the stress associated with this uh, led to some kind of increased likelihood for schizophrenia.
1: Wow. So it sounds like it's um what causes schizophrenia in an, in an individual is a multi-factor mm-hmm. uh, complicated thing. Okay, Kim, are you ready for the neuroscience? Because I think I might be ready for the I neuroscience. I think I'm ready.
2: I think I'm <laughs> You're, ready.
1: I think you were ready like as soon as you woke up this morning. But okay, so let's uh, what what part of the brain what part of the brain is implicated with schizophrenia symptoms?
2: Well, I'll tell you a little fun story. That the interesting thing about our knowledge of what parts of the brain or circuits that are implicated in schizophrenia comes from an accidental
1: discovery. Oh yeah, how so?
2: Well, in the early nineteen fifties, a drug known as chlorpromazine. Uh, it was actually developed as an anesthetic, and it had sedating effects. When uh, doctors were, you know, thinking about potentially how could we sedate patients who had these very wild, paranoid, uh, hallucinag- hallucinations, delusions, etc. Could we possibly use this drug to help sedate them? It turns out, actually, yes. It didn't. Uh, it didn't sedate them. So, depending on the dose, um, if they gave them sort of a mild, moderate dose, not a high dose, because it would actually put them to sleep, but it, in fact, reversed their symptoms of psychosis. So, patients were said to be "quote ready to return to no- normal life" unquote after years of crippling psychosis, and because of its effects on psychosis, uh, chlorpromazine and you know, there were many other drugs that were developed after that, were called, literally, antipsychotics. And this marked a major movement movement in psychiatry as this breakthrough allowed patients to finally leave the institutions and resume some degree of normal life.
1: That's amazing. And I just want to mention that psychosis is a completely different meaning from psychopathy. So, uh, like a psycho- psychotic doesn't mean psychopathic, right? Psychotic is sort of what we're talking about with like a break from reality maybe hallucinations where psych where uh psychopath is much more of a um a, a way you interact with other people and your, you know how much you care about this it's not you're, about you're hallucinations and, and delusions you don't care
2: yeah about hurting people yeah yeah yeah
1: so mm-hmm. psychotic just means like a break from reality not necessarily dangerous um so what is this what, what okay so this these um antipsychotics seem to work did that give us clues about what the brain was doing in the patient of schizophrenia
2: exactly so it boils down to our understanding of how these drugs work in the brain so we kind of work backwards so once we realized these drugs had clinical efficacy meaning they reduced the symptoms of schizophrenia pharmacologists got to work mapping out how it worked in the brain and it turns out these drugs are very strong da 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 drum roll please. Brrr. Blockers of dopamine. Back Sorry, that was dopamine. not a drumroll. That was terrible. Good <laughs> <laughs> old dopamine. It like you were burping over there. <laughs> I can't do it. Um, so <laughs> antipsychotics, uh, what they do is they sit on... Uh, the receptor, so something that normally, bu- like a receptor is a kind of protein that binds a neurochemical. And uh, these antipsychotics literally sit and occupy the binding site for dopamine, and uh, because it resembles the shape, and they prevent dopamine from binding to that receptor. So they're dopamine antagonists is the fancy word. And in particular, they block a specific subtype of the dopamine receptor known as the D2 receptor subtype and um, yeah, so it prevents dopamine from acting at that receptor and having its effect downstream.
1: Okay, so is schizophrenia caused by too much, drum roll please, <laughs> dopamine? <laughs> sort of, yes. Uh, and this
2: hypothesis is further substantiated by the fact that drugs that elevate dopamine too much, so for example, things like amphetamines or cocaine, can actually produce a psychotic-like
1: state. Mm, That's pretty compelling evidence.
2: Mm -hmm, Exactly. So essentially what it boils down to is that people with schizophrenia seem to have excess dopamine signaling in a part of the brain known as the striatum, which is a striped body, but it's a part of the brain that is localized deep in the middle of the brain. And it has many different roles, but it's involved in reward function, attention, motivation, and emotion, and to some extent, motor control. And then uh, what scientists later discovered is, yes, schizophrenia is too much dopamine in the striatum, but in fact, too little dopamine in parts of the prefrontal cortex that are involved in more of that um, memory and and intentional focus. So, it's a bit of too much here, too little there, and that's what kind of makes it a little bit challenging um,
1: to treat. Wow. So, can we conclude, based on this discovery, that patients with schizophrenia now have effective treatments? Nope, not exactly. (laughs) Oh, not exactly. More (laughs) nuance
2: yeah, so as it turns out, the uh, the first generation of antipsychotics were pretty good at treating the positive symptoms, but they had pr- horrible side effects. And they also were not very good at treating the negative and cognitive
1: symptoms. oh, right. okay. so not uh, not all the symptoms were affected equally.
2: That's right. And the other major problem is medication
1: compliance. Like people wouldn't don't want to take the medicine.
2: Yeah, so first it can be hard to even initiate medicine. So people who are psychotic and paranoid, remember, they think sometimes people are poisoning them, oh, organs yeah. are being taken from them. They're often distrustful, particularly of authorities. Think about physicians here and you read mm-hmm. some quotes from that book that, you know, even with therapists, they're they they can be just distrustful of them. So it can be very difficult to even initiate medicine. And then once they are taking them, if that's the case, they'll take them, they start to feel better and they're like, "Oh, I'm okay. I don't need these drugs. And then as soon as they stop taking them, they can relapse and they can start the cycle all over again. So drug compliance is a huge challenge in treating severe psychiatric conditions such as schizophrenia. And it can be heartbreaking to observe this as a loved one of a family member or a friend who is really not well.
1: Is it is it just that they feel better and they stop, or are there also like unpleasant side effects of these drugs, do you know?
2: Well, a little bit, um, that was the case back in like, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, but in like the 2000s, we j- developed other medicine
1: that had reduced side effects, so. Okay. All right, so it's, all right, so, and there was like a deinstitutionalization movement in the 50s, so, uh, where, people like, we got, we reduced the number of facilities, like, um, where people would, could stay, right, like, uh, and so we don't have as many as we used to, right, for people who are very ill?
2: Yeah, so this is the so-called revolving door phenomenon, and this is why we have a lot of really unwell people showing up at the ER, uh, because they are they are really unwell or homeless, right? When we look at our homeless population, a lot of them are suffering from severe mental illness, and we do not have the funding or social supports or culturally sensitive trauma-informed supports for folks that may be extreme experiencing these extreme psychotic, paranoid, uh, or schizophrenia like conditions, we simply just don't have that funding. And so what it means is that folks, again, compliance is an issue, so they may not be taking their medicine, there's no supports for them to be taking their medicine, and they end up often on the streets um, or bumping into our hospital systems because they've come to a point where they really are unwell and the only place that they can seek treatment is in the ER. And of course, this has all kinds of other ramifications associated with that. So even in institutional settings, cheeking pills is common. So that's when you might, you know, you've seen this in the movies, I'm sure. Somebody's like, here, you know, stick out your tongue. And they put the the pill on the top of their tongue. And then they stick it in their cheek and pretend like they're swallowing, but they haven't. And the other factor is ethical concerns. So um, there's a lot of Um, challenge with forcing people to take medicine uh, with the possible exception of of violent criminals or people who are uh, demonstrated to be a significant risk uh, to self-harm or to harm others. So, unless you meet those criteria, we cannot force somebody to take their medicine.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I I just want to mention for our American listeners that Canada has a reputation for socialized medicine and to a big extent that's true. But the two things that you need for mental health, which is therapy and drugs, are not part of the federal, you know, medicine thing, and people have insurance for that, just like, um, just like in the U.S. So, unfortunately, there's uh, less support for mental illness in general because those two things aren't covered, and uh, that's really tragic.
2: It sure is. Um, we need mental health to be funded better. But I wanna leave our listeners with some hope and optimism. The medicine we have to treat schizophrenia today, as I was saying a little earlier, is far better and more effective with fewer side effects than so-called first-generation antipsychotics. But the key is we really need good social support and a system that can support that. So there is a lot to be hopeful for. And I wanna end by saying if you or someone you know is suffering from some of the symptoms we described today, we have put some resources and links on our mindingthebrainpodcast.com website.
0: Minding the Brain is edited by Mike Kontos and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Theme music for Minding the Brain is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.